everyone, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journeys of Scientists. I'm Brian Stanley. I'm a physics PhD student at Michigan State University doing physics education research. I'm an outreach coordinator for the graduate student organization WAMPS. This podcast consists of informal conversations with graduate students with the goal of learning a little bit about their work, their interests and hobbies outside of work, and the experiences that brought them to where they are today. If you or someone you know is interested in joining an episode of Journeys of Scientists, please email me at the email provided in the show notes. This week we are joined by Lauren Koenig, a PhD candidate in the Department of Integrative Biology. Before we get to Lauren, I have some announcements about upcoming WAMPS events. As part of the MSU Science Festival, WAMPS will be doing a public presentation on the science of sports. I'll be moderating the presentation while we'll hear from physics grad student Jacob Watkins, osteopathic medical student Megan Carrillo, who has appeared on the podcast, physics grad student Paul Hemersky, aka Tall Paul, and physics grad student John Wyland. These speakers will be presenting on the science behind Frisbee, sports injury prevention, the javelin, and ice skating. That will be taking place on Saturday, April 10th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. After the sports presentation, I will be joining the Sci-Files podcast panel along with some other awesome MSU podcast hosts at 3.30. And if that's not enough science for you, there's more. At 4 p.m., Jesse McAuliffe, who is on episode 3, will be presenting Neutrinos in Your Home as work through the Ice Cube Observatory group. All these events will take place on Saturday, April 10th. The MSU Science Festival has many more events throughout the rest of April. More details on all of these events will be provided in the show notes. Now let's get to this great conversation with Lauren. Welcome, Lauren. Can you briefly introduce yourself? What do you study? What year are you? Sure. Uh, My name is Lauren Koenig. I am a fifth year PhD candidate in the integrative biology department, and I'm also part of the ecology, evolution, and behavior program. Um, I came into grad school being interested in a lot of different facets of animal behavior, uh, but my thesis has kind of taken shape around the idea of how we can learn more about biology from animals best suited to understand a particular question in research. So this is also known as Krogh's principle, the idea that there's a certain type of animal that's particularly suited for a specific question you might have, often in biology. And you might think about some of these animals we use in biology. They're like fruit flies or lab rats or mice. And we get a lot of information from them because they're really, really helpful in the lab. They're small, they're simple, they're um, easily raised, um, they have fast growing times, um, and you can use them to study a lot of other things that you can't study directly. So you might remember from um, your earlier biology classes, the idea that we could use big squid neurons to look at how neurons work. Even though um, we can't look at our neurons or human neurons so easily, we can kind of understand a lot about them by looking at other animals. Um, but sometimes there's not a lot of natural variation in these other organisms, or they don't have like the particular traits of interest that we want to study. So (laughs) that's a really long way to set up uh, what my thesis has done, which is to look at non-traditional models and how we can maybe apply some of the technical developments that have come into place since Krogh's principle was first stated almost 100 years ago. And um, what I've looked at most recently and specifically are fish. 
Um, so I've been looking at this group of fish called osteoglossiforms. They're bony tongue fish and they're super, super diverse. And in particular, I've been looking at their reproductive behavior and their morphology. So looking at what I like to think about is like a more comprehensive scope of from star A to B, how the genes and physiology um, all interact and ultimately contribute to the output, which is what we see, and that's their behavior. Okay, very cool. What is a a bony tongue fish? Or like, what what does that mean? Uh, exactly what it sounds like that they have little uh, bony scale or bony protrusions on the tip of their tongues. Um, the other thing that you might see if you're going to look at a bunch of osteoglossiforms is that a lot of them have these big armored plates. Um, this group of fish actually includes the biggest freshwater fish, which is called an arapaima, and they can grow up to 10 feet long. They're a big charismatic aquarium favorite, but um, I didn't always put the name to this giant fish you might see in the aquarium until I started looking at these guys from a research perspective. Um, and they also include really tiny fish that are about an inch long called uh, freshwater butterfly fish. Um, so there's a huge scope. Um, but some of the things that they do have in common seems to be that they're affected by these um, evolutionary forces called sexual selection and sperm competition. And they have every different type of parental care. They are the only known vertebrates which have um, a flagellate sperm, which is super weird to have a sperm without a tail. And that also don't seem to move around, which is crazy. Like how does that even work? They're doing just fine without it. They're very specious. Um, and they also seem to have only one gonad. So like the females will only have one ovary. Um, the males will only have one uh, testicle. So that's another very strange feature of these guys um, that probably goes into play from, like I said, from start to finish, uh, what's going on at the genes that control these weird features all the way to how this might affect whether or not they decide to invest in taking care of their young or not. Do you study like these fish like any like just a fish tank in a lab or are you actually out in a you know the field or waterway wherever you call it you know out out in the wilderness you know observing yeah um so i started this project and i was in a lab that studies electric fish electric fish are part of this bony tongue group of fish um and I was in a lab where they had lots and lots of different fish species, uh, electric fish species, um, in fish tanks in the basement of one of the buildings. And uh, I was looking at some of the electric fish and their sperm and their go. About biology is getting to go see them in the field. And so in the summer of 2019, I went with a couple of other people from my lab to Gabon in West Africa. And there we collected uh, hundreds of different species of fish and brought many samples back to the lab for a feature study on uh, what's inside their bodies and uh, also some live fish that we can look at to see how they behave. Okay, very cool. I have kind of like a a bigger just general question so like i've talked to many different people there in like the fisheries and wildlife department mm -hmm. and so they study you know animals and whatnot but you're also studying animals but you're in the integrative biology department like what is the difference between like the two why why are you in one versus the other i suppose or like what's the difference between the two 
Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of times there'll be labs that could fit in one category as just as much as they could fit in the other. But a lot of times fish and wildlife has more of a management perspective. So they're looking at applied research and how maybe our understanding of um, fish behavior could be used to raise fish or to um, affect humans' uh, consumption of fish or aquaculture um, or how we might take a more um, conservation-minded approach to increase populations. Um, and so it's more of like human interactions with fish or how, uh, or other animals as well. But they can also be just as involved in like the main research, which is maybe, um, maybe also what like integrative biology does more is looking at the animals for the animal's sake. And we might do a little bit more like molecular biology um, or more mechanistic work in integrative biology without so much of a focus on management. Um, and this is not like a hard and fast rule. There's still also plenty of labs in iBio integrative biology that also work with government organizations like USGS or um, fish and wildlife to um design management or conservation strategies around what the results are of the research. Okay, very cool. I have another question. I don't know if this is a good question or not, um, <laughs> but um, you know, there's you know, gazillions and gazillions of species of any type of animal out there. And so absolutely you don't know every single thing about every single one. So how do you, when you go in, do you're like, I'm just interested in fish or just animals in general? Or do you like, oh, this one specific species, you know, really stands out to me. So I'm going to learn everything I can about this one specific species. Like how, what is like your breath? Like you had described, like, it seemed like a pretty wide breath, but like, how do you decide? I'm like, I want to study on this one little thing or kind of like more broad. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think it's a question a lot of people think about when they're first deciding whether to go to graduate school or not. Um, so for me, and we can talk about this later too, I was super indecisive and I didn't know what I wanted to study. And so when you're choosing to go to graduate school, a lot of you need to find a lab where you're going to belong. And usually those labs have a little bit more focus. So you might be interested in something broad like animal behavior, and you might see a lab that's doing something really specific like working on electric fish. And so you would kind of end up working on electric fish behavior as a way to get your foot in the door and to learn about the organism. And then as you start doing more of that hands-on research, um, you have to think about the broader picture and how your research is contributing to increasing overall knowledge about that subject. And so you start off kind of small and then you end up branching out. And that's the kind of the point where I'm at, where I used to start off really much more particular and writing the thesis has made me spend a lot more time digging through the literature and thinking about like these bigger questions that this little tiny piece of research might fit into. Um, but some people come in and they're like, I really love working with lions and I want to know everything there is to know about this one particular uh, species of lion. And that's, uh, sorry, not species of lion, but like mm -hmm. a particular population, right? Mm -hmm. And um, they're, uh, they might want to, they might have a very specific project. And that's actually really great for grad school because grad school requires you to be super focused. Um, so you have a lot of pick and choices, but it's usually best if you're more focused and then work your way bigger later. Okay. You said you're in your fifth year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like, are you like working on like a dissertation now? Or are you still like, 
camp. Yeah. <laughs> is it like how far away is it? <laughs> um, I'm hoping to uh, defend sometime this summer. So um, this is really great. Thank you for offering me the chance to talk with you. It's kind of a break from dissertation writing. And um, it's it's been nice to be able to take that step back and look at everything I've done over the past five years um, and kind of put it all in a picture, like a big story, like the how does this all work together? Um, but yeah, that's kind of the part that I'm up to is um, towards the tail end and looking ahead to what's next. Okay. Do you have do you have an idea for like what's next, like what you would like to do? I have an idea. We'll see if it uh, happens or not. <laughs> but um, I've been really interested in science communication over the past couple of years. It's something that's always been in the background of my interests. Um, I've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed science and I've started to really enjoy writing about science. So um, I've been doing a little bit of freelancing on the side. I've had some experience doing science writing um, and other avenues. And um, when you're in a research lab, you always have opportunities to um, help edit other people's works and their papers and they do the same for you. So it's kind of just been building up towards this and it's something that I like. It's something I feel that is um, comes more naturally to me sometimes more than doing actual research. So I'm hoping to um, look into jobs that are more in science communication, science journalism, or even technical writing. But we'll see um, how that pans out. You can ask me next year. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like that sounds like a plan. Uh, that that's that's really great. Um, yeah, that's that's very that's very interesting. So like I study physics education research. And so like my particular work is in what I call informal physics, which is slightly different from science communication. It was slightly different from like physics outreach, but they all kind of like overlap in some, in some way. Um, how, so would you say like your communication that you were more focused on is on the writing aspect of like writing, I don't know, either news i would say newspaper periodical you know sort of things or maybe like something bigger like books or is it just kind of like all over the place yeah my specific interest in science communication is definitely in science writing like news articles i consume a lot of popular science writing too um so writing for like uh discover magazine um or news articles like the conversation um writing for Scientific American, National Geographic. There's a lot of different ways that um, people can get involved in science writing. Um, I haven't thought about writing a book, but that would probably be a couple of decades from now. And uh, there's also other different avenues that you can get involved in science communication, as I'm sure you're really familiar with, um, with what you study, is you can work um, in the school system offering other um like classroom resources that can help introduce science um, in other ways besides the typical standard formats. You can work in a museum as um, an exhibit curator, which seems like a dream job, uh, figuring out ways to translate the research into uh, ways that museum goers like to digest that information. Um, there's also podcasts and radio shows, a lot of YouTube channels um, that are devoted to making science accessible to the public. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to get involved in it, but to answer your question, I've been most interested in writing so far. How, how easy or difficult has it been to do that while in grad school? I definitely think it's something that's a little bit easier to do towards the tail end. So I have 
I took classes. I TA'd a teaching assistant my first few years in graduate school. And of course, that takes up a lot of time while you're trying to figure out what you want to study, what you want to research um, and figure out where you want to go from there. And then when that tapered off, it freed up a little bit more time for me to explore this other interest on that side. And um, what's been also really fortunate is that MSU at least has a lot of different ways to um, practice science communication. So in the Electric Fish Lab, we went to local elementary school science nights and presented a little exhibit and brought a fish to um, elementary school students and their parents who would come to these science fairs in the evenings. Um, and so that gives us already like a little bit of practice to talk about the research and to figure out a way to convey it so that it's engaging and fun for people. And um, there's also workshops and uh, conferences that are offered through MSU. So this past summer, I had the opportunity to go to MSU uh, ConSciCom. Um, it's a chapter of an overall larger ConSciCom group. And that was really eye-opening. It was a two-day conference, and I learned a lot about how to pitch articles to outside organizations. Um, I had practice writing a news article that actually, uh, they helped me workshop and I eventually pitched it and was accepted as a publication for Discover Magazine. Magazine. And so once you start having a more of a writing portfolio and you start um, making those connections, it just gets easier and easier. Um, but it definitely is something you can do while you're still a graduate student. It's like taking the stuff you're already doing, like the um, grant proposals or your proposals that you have to write for your department, and just turning it into a way that you would explain it to your friends or family members so that they still find it interesting and there's a lot less of that academic jargon in there. Okay, very cool. How much of, of this would you say is, um, like if you're, you're doing these proposals or you're writing, you know, these pieces, how much input would you say is like 100% you versus like, oh, how like supportive your advisor, you know, Kent is or like, oh, helping you find these or, you know, evaluate a review or whatever. Yeah, so the science writing for fun um, has definitely been more on my time. Um, I've definitely talked to my advisors about it and been like, oh, this is something I'm working on. And uh, usually the department will be really supportive if you get a publication. They're really proud and happy to show that they have students who are making a broader impact in the outside world beyond the university. Um, but for getting started, it was kind of on my own initiative. And then... Um, yeah, you, you don't get as much feedback from an advisor as you do if you're writing a grant proposal or you're writing a manuscript for publication through the academic sphere. Okay, very cool, very, very interesting. Just, you know, different things I'd like to think about. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of like go back in time, what did you study in undergrad? Sure, um, so I was really lucky. I had a fantastic undergraduate research experience. Um, I did my undergraduate at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and I started off not knowing very much about the science research world at all, um, except for I just really like animals and I like animal behavior. And Vanderbilt is much more known for like their medical program and their medical school, but there's a few researchers in the biology program who do some really, really cool work with the neural neurology basis of behavior. 
Um, and one of those um, researchers is Ken Catania. And I applied to be uh, an undergraduate researcher in his lab. Um, everyone has to get research credit in their junior and senior year. And I was like, this is the only lab that is a good fit for me. I going really, really hope I can get in. And it was a fantastic experience because um, Dr. Catania studies all kinds of weird animals. That's kind of his thing. And what we can learn about them, not just for their own sake, but how they're, they said like all these different beautiful ways of looking at biology and weird adaptations that, you know, these animals have been able to use to survive. So um, I kind of had free reign. I came in there and I was like, I want to work with weird things. What should I do? And he was like, you could work with tarantulas. We could get some snapping alligator turtles. We could get these weird scorpion things that shoot vinegar out of their stingers. If you want to try jumping spiders, go for it. And so I basically bought all of these animals into the lab. <laughs> and um, I ended up having four different projects, one of which my favorite was working with tarantulas. And that involved using scanning electron microscopy to look at their spiky hairs on mm -hmm. the back of their bodies. They will kick off the hairs into like an oncoming predator or human owner if they're a pet. And they're really, really irritating. They'll scratch the skin. If you get them in your eyes, they can scratch the cornea. And I just kind wanted to look at that under a scanning electron microscope much more closely, like all the way into the micro mm -hmm. micrometer length of these hairs. And uh, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Um, I got to put anything I want really under the scanning electron microscope. I could ask questions, nothing was considered silly or a waste of time. And so I really learned a lot from that experience. Um, it let me try a lot of different things that I think I wouldn't have been able to if I had been more focused. Um, and so it helped me learn what I like and what I didn't like. That, that's super cool. Uh, yeah, tarantulas are awesome. Um, when you I'm just curious, like, it, it can't sound like you had, you know, free reign of, you know, whatever animals you have. How do you get said animals? Because, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, the, the snapping term, that's not something I could just go to, like, PetSmart and buy or, or something like that. So there are some specialty pet stores. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, there's one in Lansing called Purse Pets, and they have some really weird and exotic critters over there. There was an equivalent um, in Nashville. I remember going to the store and they have all kinds of tarantulas. One was uh, the Goliath bird eater tarantula. It's the size of a dinner plate. It's the most aggressive, extremely venomous, you know, very painful if it bites you, which is kind of a misnomer. Tarantulas don't really do that. Um, and I asked, my advisor, can we get one of those? And he's like, I think we should start with something a little bit easier. <laughs> so I ended up with uh, some of the more domestic species and uh, a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to handle. And I'm very grateful for that because I was a first time uh, tarantula handler. And uh, yeah, so you can get them at the store, you can order them. Um, a graduate student in the lab was working with crocodiles at the time. And so he would go down to a crocodile ranch um, down south somewhere and come back with eggs. And so we just had all kinds of animals in the lab to learn from and play with. <laughs> That's uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
is it okay? I guess it's easier than what I thought it would be. I, I wasn't involved in the permits with that, so um, it was easy from my perspective. But I guess that's true. As an undergrad, you don't have to worry about like the actual logistics. I'm sure there's like all sorts of like ethics and like other, uh, you know, just yeah, paper, every university paper, a lot of paperwork, a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, very cool. So how how soon did you get into like the research? You said like juniors and seniors required to do research. Is that when when you started? Or do you mm-hmm. start earlier? Yeah, so I was just taking classes. Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I think there's a common thread throughout my experience in science. It's been indecision. And um, I actually was minoring in music at the same time. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed music and art. Um, I was thinking about, when I first started Vanderbilt, I was thinking about um, majoring in poli-sci, but I really liked my science classes. Um, and I thought this has, as much as I like my classes, I was trying to think more about what the options are for me after um, and what kind of jobs would be available that I would like from these different fields. And so that kind of led me to focus more in the sciences and keep music as more of a hobby and art as more of a hobby. Um, and so after graduating from Vanderbilt, um, I went to my first research experience as um, it was through an REU research experience Mm -hmm. for undergraduate program. Um, And it took place at a field station in Western Colorado called the Rocky Mountain Biolab or Rumble for short. And it's a ghost town turned into a high tech research facility, uh, which is really fascinating. It's uh, 9,000 feet in Western Colorado, and there are researchers from all over the world who come there every summer. They do a lot of climate change research because an alpine environment is really mm-hmm. useful for that. And I applied as an undergraduate, um, just graduated really, and was really lucky to get into a project studying squirrel behavior. <laughs> and so you might think, why do you need to go all the way to Western Colorado to study mm-hmm. squirrels? Um, but these are special squirrels. They are really useful indicators for climate change. They've been changing when they emerge from their hibernation burrows as a result of warming temperatures. And they're also interesting to look at population movements because there's a couple of different groups around the environment there. And it was just an incredible experience because it lets you interact with all these um, academic researchers and grad students in various stages of their career and um, not be worried or intimidated by fancy titles or um, an academic setting. Everybody there um, lives there and they're either wearing their field clothes or their pajamas. You 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 can't really tell the difference between someone who's extremely famous and someone who's just starting out. It puts everyone on this equal playing field. So um, it was kind of like a science summer camp and it really opened my eyes to what's possible in the academic world and definitely motivated me to think about graduate school as a possible choice. Oh, super cool. Yes, I've done a, I've done a couple of RUs too. And I, I love them because it's like, you got to go someplace different. You got to meet new people and do different things. What kind of, during your RU, so I'm also like from, I'm from Northern Colorado. So I was familiar with, with the mountains. Did you, what kind of stuff did you do at your RU? Like, outside of the actual lab like obviously you had like free time you had the weekends you had mm-hmm. other things like what what kind of activities or whatnot did you did you do other fun things while you're there 
Yeah. So I'm from New York. I grew up there and never left until I went away to college. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the whole mountain thing was pretty new to me. And the lack of oxygen was also extremely mm-hmm. new to me. <laughs> but uh, after a few weeks, you get used to it. And so I started uh, doing the most hiking I'd ever really done. I mean, I had never gone camping until I went to college. And so it just really let me get super involved into more outdoorsy stuff. So I went backpacking for the first time. Um, I guess there aren't really a big range of hobbies to do out there because it's pretty remote. It's about 30 minutes from the nearest like ski town resort. Mm -hmm. Um, But there people would go into town for karaoke on Wednesday nights. It was just like a really nice group of people um that you could hang out with go hiking together um as just as you know it's just so beautiful out there so <laughs> uh definitely one of my best experiences to the extent that I actually came back for two more summers and so um stayed on there until I was mostly the main research assistant or pro- the lead of the project really for the ground squirrels oh super cool that's 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 not super fun um, you mentioned that you like minored in music. Did you play an instrument or instruments? Yeah, I minored in piano performance. So um, unfortunately, I haven't really done a lot of music since college because I was doing all these field jobs and it's not really helpful for bringing a piano with you. But mm-hmm. up until college, I had played piano on very regularly. Do you have like a keyboard or anything like that? Or oh, they, no, like, not right now. They... Don't tell my piano teachers. Okay. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been all science these past few days or years. <laughs> mm-hmm. How what, how long were you in into piano? Um, my parents started me on piano lessons when I was seven. Um, and so that was all the way up till 22. Okay. Piano, in my mind, because as someone who is not musically talented at all, Piano to me just seems impossible. There are too many keys and I don't understand how you keep what, how one hand does something and the other hand doesn't. Are you, are you just able to do multiple different things at once? Or are you just like very good at like, oh, I can do various things. (laughs) It definitely involves practicing a lot one hand at a time. That's the Mm. way to get to it. Yeah. Okay. Or do you feel like, oh, you can write with one hand and then, I don't know, paint with the other? Or do you you feel like I can (laughs) do it? Yeah. No, if anything, I've learned that multitasking is basically impossible. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard to do two things well. And at that point, you might as well just done one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very cool. I think drums are even harder. I was going to say, if anything, I have so much admiration for people who play the drums because being able to keep rhythm in like four parts of your body going at the same time is just uh for people who are mathematically challenged like myself seems very intimidating uh, that yeah i agree that also sounds hard that also feels sounds like needs a lot of hand-eye coordination which mm-hmm. you know <laughs> <laughs> um okay very cool were you okay so you were doing research as an undergrad you were minoring in music it sounds like you had you were heavily involved with the things. Did you were you a part of like any other like organizations or interests or activities outside? Or is that mostly what your time in undergrad was? Yeah. Um, so I like to do a lot of well-rounded things, um, probably except for sports. Um, and I, uh, I. Like I mentioned, I had never gone camping before until I got to college. And that was because I joined 
there, there was um, an outdoors group. I know Michigan mm. State has one like that too. And that was really, really great where they would um, take care of the gear and you could kind of just sample all different things. So we went whitewater rafting and horseback riding and spelunking. Tennessee is a really great place for caves. Like the whole state is basically mm. hollow. And um, <laughs> there, there's like a lot of opportunities to try new things through that particular club. Um, I also really enjoy art as an amateur. So um, there's a lot of different art classes you could take for credit, which is the best type of art, I think. Um, you don't have to worry about pressure to do well and you can just enjoy it. And um, I also like to dance. So I, in addition to taking piano lessons, I was really lucky that um, I was put into ballet classes as well. And so I carried that through me to college and uh, also branched out and got to try other types of dance like Latin and swing. So um, I definitely like to make sure that it's not all about science, um, which is really great when the science isn't going well, um, that there's another outlet <laughs> to have fun or to meet people so that you kind of um, can talk about things other than your work. And so um, that's something I definitely still continue to do as long as um, it's not overwhelming and you can make time for it. Uh, I recently learned, um, other people do about this, I did not, of like the dance your PhD or, or something like that. Where yeah, it's like the... awesome. mm -hmm. They're so talented. <laughs> you, you think maybe oh, you could do something like that? You could dance, you know, like, like a fish. I don't know. <laughs> I have thought about it for sure. Um, I actually had the opportunity to participate as a B in somebody else's dance your PhD uh, contest entry um, out in Colorado. Um, it definitely takes a lot of thought and creativity to put all of that together. Um, so I'll keep thinking about it, but it's not on the docket right now. <laughs> Maybe not the highest priority of getting your thesis done. <laughs> yeah, but probably really fun. <laughs> Um, you mentioned you're from New York. Are you from like the actual city or like not the city? I, I'm from Nassau County on Long Island. So um, about a 30 minute train ride from Manhattan. Okay. So then when you were in undergrad and you're like, oh, I've never done camping, but here's this outdoors thing. Was that just because, was that because you're like, oh, I want to actually do outdoors things? Or is that just because like, oh, you heard about it randomly? You're like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's do that. Or a combination of both. Uh, probably a combination of both. I always liked it when I had the opportunity. Um, so like my parents would always take me to parks or um, New York has actually a really lovely beach, um, which isn't always considered the best feature. And so I spent a lot of time outdoors during the summer. Um, and yeah, it was it was just a chance to try new things, which is one of the reasons why um, I did want to go to college out of state. And fortunately, Vanderbilt has a really great financial aid program. So um, it was possible to have this awesome experience um, in Tennessee and try something completely different than everything I had known growing up. How was the transition of moving from a big city to, to Tennessee. I, I just imagine like it's kind of a culture shock in a way, but maybe it's not. Yeah, uh, I was definitely in kind of that college bubble, I think is pretty mm -hmm. much true for any university. And Nashville has actually become a really uh, growing city. I remember when I first saw the skyline, I was like, where is the rest of it? Mm. But it's actually, uh, it's pretty decent. And there's a lot of stuff there. And of course, it's also known for their music scene, which isn't just country music, it's phenomenal. And so um, that was another 
thing that made the music program a lot of fun is that um, I remember like my music history class, they would bring in these country music stars and I hadn't heard of them. We don't have a country music radio station in New York, at least not at the time. And I remember that coming up in one of my classes and one of the students just being outraged. How could there not be a country music station? Um, and so I actually think that um, that class was one where I learned the most because I came in knowing absolutely nothing. Um, and it was just like a kind of different um, eye-opening experience than I intended to even get. So that was really cool. Oh, super cool. Would you say, would you say that was, what would you say is your, like your most favorite class that you've taken? Um, as an undergraduate, it would probably be, um, It's a toss-up between African drumming and steel drumming. <laughs> I worked really hard to get a lot of my basic requirements done out of the way in my first two, three years of undergrad, which I highly recommend, which opened the door to let me fulfill some of my electives and the more fun classes. And so um, those drumming classes are really cool because, like I said, I... I'm not very good at it. And it's really fun to um, try something new. And um, there's also cultural components that came with those classes, which were really interesting. And our teacher for the African German class invited the entire class to come to a family gathering. And um, that was exceptionally kind of him and just really uh, interesting experience and exposure to something that I hadn't seen before. And we also got to perform as part of those classes. So each one of them had uh, um a big musical performance at the end of the semester with costumes and you get to work on something and show off to everybody who bothered to come and see you. And um, yeah, that's what made them really fun. <laughs> and, oh. and besides just being different from the science. Oh, super cool. Okay. So you now, okay. I get to like now. -ish. So you had mentioned like, Oh, life is just full of uncertainties. Can you explain a little bit of like, okay, why, how did you end up going to grad school? And then like, how, how did you end up here? Sure. Um, so after I finished at the Rocky Mountain Biolab for my first summer as an REU, um, I was really bitten by the field work bug. And um, sometimes it's actually really literal and there's, you do work in these really hard to live places, but I just love the chance to see animals in their actual wild places and getting a chance to travel. So I went, there's a job board that still exists called the Texas A&M job board for um, biology jobs. And a lot of them are also field work or graduate positions. And I basically applied to every single thing I could find that um, my requirements were that it had to have some kind of stipend. A lot of them, uh, they're you basically work as an intern for free. And sometimes it's not really possible to do that. Sometimes um, it's not really a good idea to do that um, based on the organization. Um, but I was really lucky and landed a job working with the U.S. Uh, Geographical Science, Geological Society, USGS. And um, I went to California and worked in the Bay Area with an endangered species of birds called clapperails. And that was really interesting because it gave me a chance before I was working in the academic side of things, but now I was working to understand the government side of things and uh, a little bit more management focused work. And from there, I then went to the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, where I studied bats. That was a pretty short project. And uh, that was looking at these fringe lip bats that have these crazy ears and crazy noses. Mm -hmm. And they um, are very popular in the study where they look at how these bats can tell 
where their food is and how the food, which are these frogs, try and avoid the bats. So I was actually looking at male courtship displays in this species as an intern. And then from there, the bat experience is really helpful. I did a very short job out in Fort Campbell, which is on the border of Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, living on an army base, working for a for-profit consulting group that was um, contracted by the Department of Defense. And the idea was to go and identify the species of bats that were on the army base to make sure that there wasn't construction that might harm the habitat of these bats. Um, and that was actually a really fascinating experience um, and something I had never really encountered before. Um, and by then I was looking, I was thinking about going to graduate school. I had applied um, and actually didn't get in anywhere that also offered funding. So I continued working at another job back in New York. And this is probably my weirdest job. It involved um, sitting on a boat, driving around New York City reservoirs and shooting fireworks at birds to prevent them from pooping in the water. <laughs> it's not how it's phrased on my CV, I can tell you that. But um, that was actually a really cool job because I learned a lot of different skills. I learned how to drive a motorboat. I learned how to drive an airboat. I had gained firearms experiences. And all of this is about 30 minutes north of New York City. Um, and it's part of the reason why New York has very good drinking water. Um, they use a filtration system rather than um, like a very expensive filtration plant. And it's through gravity where the water comes from upstate and comes all the way down to New York. So you don't have to use as many um, like external things to filter the water, you have people making sure that external things don't get into the water. <laughs> so I learned a lot about bird species. I didn't know that bald eagles were so prevalent, just so close to New York City, which is very uh, fun. You never know what you're going to see in during the day. You never know what you're going to find in the reservoir. Um, and it was also extremely cold in the winter. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm really ready to go to graduate school. I've got a lot of practical skills. I've got and experience with birds and bats and mammals and I have a better idea about study. and fireworks um, <laughs> which hasn't really come into play since then but I'm still waiting <laughs> um, and so it was what I liked about those different jobs is that um, in those four years between undergraduate and graduate degrees I got to learn about different perspectives biology and figure out what kind of degree would help me get a job in the right perspective that I would want. Do I want to work in management? Do I want to work in academia? What is most versatile so that I have those options after I graduate? Fascinating. When did you get interested in the, the science communication aspect? So that was kind of like a parallel track. <laughs> I promise mm -hmm. this answer won't be as long. <laughs> um, that was kind of going along at the same time. I, um, I always really enjoyed the humanities of my education. I actually really liked science, but didn't think it was my thing. So I was felt like I was stronger in like my social studies and history classes, um, but I just always really liked animals. So um, I took opportunities to write about science where I could. And that involved in college working on the university newspaper um, where I got to be paired with a mentor who worked for the Tennessean and he was really helpful in teaching me how to write a good news article and also really kind and letting me um, 
do things that I didn't think freshmen would necessarily be allowed to do. So, for example, at the time, I got to cover the Belmont debate, the, the presidential debate that was happening, and uh, have the responsibility of this bigger topic um, to bring to the university newspaper. And I felt really lucky to have that Um and then later on, I got to develop a science column where I talked about environmental issues and how that impacted campus, as well as like where that fit into like the larger um, environmental science topics going on at the time. Um, and that was part of a work study job. And then my second year, I uh, stayed working on the university and the university newspaper, but also took a job as a science editor at a neurology lab. And so. Most undergrads were working as lab technicians, but my job was more involved in editing or helping to write grant applications or manuscripts. And that was really helpful because I didn't have a neurology background. So I could come in as an outsider and be like, oh, I think the grammar on this is wrong, unless this is like a particular phrase that you use in this field. And so um, that really helped me actually learn about writing science and was really helpful for now when I am writing science to um, get the right phrases or the same kind of like turns of words that you might prefer to use. Um, and from there, I, during those field jobs, some of them weren't always continuous, right? There are definitely periods of unemployment in between. And I went to a conference that was hosted by an organization called the Scientista Foundation. Um, it's a nonprofit that serves to um, connect and develop resources for women in STEM. And I really enjoyed the conference. I really liked the community of people who were there. And I wasn't involved at a university at the time, so I wanted to can maintain that connection without necessarily being in school. And so I wrote to the founder and I asked her like, hey, is there any way I can be involved? And she said, yeah, we're actually looking for an editor. I was like, perfect, I can help you with that. So um, I started off as editor in chief at Scientista, uh, working with another editor at the time. And I'm now um, the sole editor in chief, um, still there. And it's been a really phenomenal experience. Um, they have university chapters for this organization, um, at, I think several dozen, uh, at least a couple dozen universities. And um, they also have annual conferences and outside events that they organize uh, with speakers they bring, and especially right now that are virtual. And we have an online blog. So I work with um, a team of other editors and we have bloggers from all over the world right now. And we, um, we have different sections on the website. And if anybody is listening would like to write, uh, we write about anything. Uh, we cover anything from topics in science to topics in women in science and anyone can write for it. Um, it doesn't have to be someone who identifies as a woman in science. So um, it's been a really fun experience to maintain those connections, to learn about um, like what is happening in that particular sphere right now and diversity initiatives and policies. So. Um, yeah, that that really propelled the science writing. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Um, yeah, wrapping things up a little bit here. Um, I always like to ask, you know, what what advice would you give to either people thinking about if grad school is something they want to do, or and like, okay, you're in grad school, like, how do you can handle that transition? Um, do you have any advice there? Yeah. So. If you're thinking about starting graduate school, I think it's really important to look for a lab if you're not in a rotation system that 
has a mentor that you feel aligns with your values and that there's also a good community of support. So that's been one of my favorite things at MSU is that the other people in the lab and the department at other student organizations have all been amazing supportive people who can help you through all of the trials and tribulations of grad school. Um, so it's really important to find out beforehand what the students and the mentors think of uh, your goals and what you think of their goals. Um, I also think it's really important to be your own advocate, um, especially in graduate school. A lot of it is really individualized, and that's when you get things like imposter syndrome. But if something is affecting you, it's probably affecting other people. So most of the time, it's a really good idea to speak up and it helps you feel a little less alone. And uh, another way to deal with that is that if you, grad school can be so overwhelming, right? There's so many things you have to do and five years can seem like a lot of time until you're starting to do them. Mm -hmm. um, it feels really helpful to have your small goals and your more long-term goals. And so you might feel like you're not good at anything until you check off a little small assignment and you're like, see, I have a track record of things that have helped me move towards accomplishing my bigger goals. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. There's just like, you had so many things, you've, you've done so many jobs and you had like so many interests. And it's like, I feel like I could just ask you for hours about each one because they sounded awesome. Um, uh, thank but thank you. Thank you for coming on doing this. It was a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me.